Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum tonight here at the Harvard Kennedy School. I'm Trey Grace. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics. And one of the things we are very proud of in the, at the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum here at the Kennedy School is acting in time. And this is a forum uh, that was put together in the last 24, 48 hours uh, with a panel of experts that we have here on campus to talk about uh, the situation in Ukraine, the crisis in Ukraine, and what, how the US and how Europe should respond. Um, so we're really excited to have everybody here tonight on such short notice and this great panel. We also want to welcome especially the students from the University of Louisville, University of Tennessee, Knoxville, and Allegheny College who are gathering on their home campuses uh, to watch this live stream. So welcome to all of you as well as everybody else watching at home. Uh, the students from those universities will have an opportunity to send questions uh, to be asked during Q&A in the forum and the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum Committee is going to help get those asked. Now tonight's panel wouldn't be possible uh, without Harvard Kennedy School Professor Nick Burns. He's the professor of the practice of diplomacy, international politics here at the school, and is the director of the Future of Diplomacy Project and the faculty chair for the programs in the Middle East and on in India and South Asia. He's on the board of directors of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and is a faculty associate here at the Weatherhead Institute on campus. He served our country for 27 years including roles as the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs from 2005 to 2008, U.S. Ambassador to NATO from 2001 to 2005, uh, Ambassador to Greece 1997 to 2000, and the State Department spokesperson from 1995 to 1997, uh, and worked for five years at the, on the National Security Council at the White House, where he was Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia Affairs, and was a Special Assistant to President Clinton and Director of Soviet Affairs in the administration of President George H.W. Bush. Uh, many regard him as the finest diplomat of his generation, and we're really glad to have him with us tonight to moderate the discussion. Professor Burns. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, this is an important evening because um, some people think that Vladimir Putin's invasion, which is the right, correct word, of Crimea, is the most important, most dangerous moment for Europe since the end of the Cold War in 1991. And here at home, a lot of people think it may be the most important foreign policy challenge for President Obama on the national security side. This is a big transformative moment. We've all grown accustomed to the Cold War, the miraculous end of the Cold War, which large, largely ended peacefully. For a quarter of a century, Europe has been democratic, relatively united and peaceful in a way that it hadn't been for hundreds of years. And now with this invasion, with a major country in the middle of Europe, Ukraine, a great country in the middle of Europe, now being potentially divided by President Putin and the Russian Federation, there's a serious crisis underway. So we've got to answer the question, what is happening? What is Putin likely to do? And how should we Americans, Europeans, people around the world respond to it? Can this be rolled back? Is it possible even to talk to President Putin President Obama and Chancellor Merkel do this in a way that might convince him to retreat. Most people don't think that's going to be possible, but we'll inspect all of the questions. And then when, once we have a conversation with my fellow panelists, we'll turn to you. Let me introduce them to you. And we're very pleased that three great experts on this part of the world are with us. To my left, immediate left, is Professor Sergei Ploki, who is the professor of Ukrainian history at Harvard University. Uh, he has most recently written a few books that directly affect this situation, The Cossack Myth. The book came out in 2012. In 2011, Yalta, The Price of Peace, 
And Serhei is working on a great new book, and we've talked a little about it, the two of us. It's called The Last Days, uh, The Last Empire. The Last Empire. Thank you. The Final Days of the Soviet Union, which is going to appear uh, here in May. There's going to be a book event. Uh, at the Harvard uh, Bookstore. At the Harvard Bookstore on May 2nd. So Serhi is um, an expert on Ukraine. He understands this long symbiotic relationship between the Ukrainian and Russian peoples, and we're going to ask him about that. To his left is our friend Eugene B. Kogan. Eugene is a Stanton uh, Nuclear Security Postdoctoral Fellow here at the Kennedy School in the Belfer Center. He's a recent PhD graduate of Brandeis University. He's an expert on nuclear negotiations. His PhD dissertation was on Cold War nuclear bargaining. He is uniquely placed to help us understand the Russian Putin mentality. He lives the first half of his life uh, as a Russian citizen uh, in Russia. He is an American citizen now and has lived the remainder of his life until now in the United States of America. And he understands, I think, maybe what is motivating President Putin. We'll talk to him about that. And finally, to his left, our good friend Brigadier General Kevin Ryan. Kevin's the director of the Defense Intelligence Project here at the Kennedy School at the Belfer Center. He's a career officer, United States Army. He was our defense attache in Russia at the embassy in Moscow. Uh, he was chief of, the chief of staff of the Space and Missile Defense Command. And he runs the ELBA project, the ELBA group project here. That brings together retired Russian and retired American generals, officers, to see if there's common ground between our two militaries, and we'll talk to Kevin about what could be done to try to mitigate some of the worst aspects of this invasion. So um, with that as prologue, and now having been introduced to these panelists, let me ask each of them a question. Um, and, and then let's go forward to see what the United States and Europe can do to respond. But I think before we go forward, we've got to take at least one step back. Because this crisis is really about the Ukrainian people and the Russian people. The Ukrainian government and the Russian government. And Serhi is the best person I can think of to answer the question. Tell us about the complex ethnic, mm -hmm. linguistic, social, cultural, political relationship going all the way back to Kievan Rus a thousand years ago between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Is this part of, in, in two minutes or less, Professor, <laughs> um, <laughs> do you see this as the fundamental problem here? that the Russians and, and Ukrainians have not yet straightened out whether they can be two independent states, maybe with different orientations, but living in the same <coughs> geographical space? Well, this is, this is impossible task, of course. Like each number, of course, is trying to deal with this different aspects of the, of the puzzle. But indeed, uh, Ukrainians and Russians, and Belarusians for that matter, go back in history to the state, medieval state, that was called Kievan Rus. And this is something that we hear a lot about that in terms of commonality, in terms of commonality of roots, culture, and President Putin last September stated that he believes personally that Russians and Ukrainians are the same people, which of course raises the question how you can then send troops to protect Russians against someone who is, who is the part of your, of, of your people and your nation. What, is, uh, what receives less attention is that through its history, most of its history up until 17th century, Ukraine was part of the political uh, bodies that were other than Russia. So it is in mid 17th century that Russia starts its movement westward with incorporating part of Ukraine 
near Kiev, around Kiev. Uh, the irony is that 300 years later, in 1954, in commemoration of that historic event of Russia starting to take over Ukrainian territories, uh, then first secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, helps to orchestrate the decision according to which Crimea, that was part before that of Russian Federation and settled by Crimean Tatars, Russians and Ukrainians, was transferred was transferred to Ukraine. That was 60 years ago. And uh, uh, some in, in today's Russia saying, okay, we are now back, we want to take back the gift, that something strange happened there to, to uh, Mr. Khrushchev. Well, the reality was, the reality was geographic, first of all. Uh, Crimea is a peninsula, a peninsula that is linked to the, to the mainland through the Ukrainian territory. So the, the, the economic ties, the cultural ties, other ties were there from the very beginning, from the times immemorial. And from that point of view, that 1954 decision was more a recognition of geography and cultural and historical realities than something that basically ca can be attributed by, by uh, Khrushchev uh, doing something that was not thought through. Uh, today, Crimea appeared in the center of the Russian-Ukrainian tensions. And it is interesting that uh, mm, during the, the referendum for Ukrainian independence back in 1991, the majority of the Crimean population voted for independence. So now there are plans to have new referendum now on the 30th of March. There's not really very clear question posed and I have questions to what degree the referendum that can take place under basically conditions of military uh, occupation uh, can really reflect the, the sentiment in the region. Right. And Sergei, just one more step back question to give sure. us some perspective on this because it doesn't always come through in the American mm -hmm. media. But it is true that Ukraine itself, the entire mm -hmm. country, is a mixture of uh, ethnic Ukrainians, Ukrainian speakers, and Russian ethnics yes. who are yes. Russian language yes. speakers. Yes. And North of the Crimea, in the eastern part of the country, in the big mm -hmm. cities of Donetsk and Dnipropetrovsk. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Thank you, Spasiba, and, um, <laughs> and Kharkiv, <laughs> that you have considerable population of ethnic Russians. This plays into the future of this struggle mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if some of those ethnic Russian communities ask President Putin to protect them yes. from this new yes. Ukrainian state, that could be a pretext for mm -hmm. further Russian military advances mm -hmm. into Ukraine. Tell us about that. Well, what we have today in terms of the ethnic composition of, of Ukraine, I'll start with the Crimea. Uh, we have there approximately 60% of the population, which is <coughs> ethnic Russians, 25% uh, Ukrainians, and the rest would be Tatars and also representatives of other, of other nationalities. Uh, but this is the only region where ethnic Russians are, are uh, the majority. That's why what we very often hear from Mr. Putin and also from Moscow in general, <coughs> I'm sorry, is that they're protecting not so much the interests of ethnic Russians as interests of Russian speakers. And this is this is additional layer of complexity when you look at the Russian language and Russian culture uh, and, and how they function in Ukraine. 
It is a mistake that quite often is made, this uh, equating language with, with identity mm -hmm. and, and language with ethnicity. And this is, this, is not, this is not always the case. We have a significant, or they have in Ukraine, significant percentage of Ukrainians who are Russian speakers and feel themselves to be, to be patriotic Ukrainians. Today you see this, this uh, people going on the streets with the signs, uh, Mr. Putin, I am Russian, I don't need your protection. A and this is, this is also in places like Donetsk or, or Dnipropetrovsk. So it, it is an issue, but again, it, the, the, the question is to, to understand all these nuances and, and lack of direct connect between language and ethnic and national identity. And in fact, just to, just to play off um, Sergei's point, in the Security Council debate yesterday in New York, and it was a very bitter debate between Vitaly Cherkin, the Russian ambassador, and Samantha Power, the American mm -hmm. ambassador, the Ukrainian ambassador said to Cherkin, he said, I'm a, I'm a Russian language speaker, I don't need Russia's protection mm -hmm. to be free in my country. A very dramatic mm -hmm. moment. Eugene, um, you studied the Cold War. In fact, your dissertation is about Cold War nuclear negotiations. A lot of people, I guess the glib, simplistic press commentary would be to say, back to the future, back to the Cold War. We're not going back to the Cold War, but some of the Cold War passions have been released in this crisis. And I wonder if you could talk about what you think Putin's strategic goal here, not his tactical goal of troops in Crimea, what is he trying to achieve by going across the border in the 21st century of another nation state, taking all the international heat from that, what's in it for him? What's his plan? Absolutely. I mean, it, uh, um, I, I've, I've thought about this issue from several different perspectives. And um, it seems to me uh, Putin obviously has a, um, a strategic objective, but also a domestic objective. And I want to talk about first the strategic objective, which is um, not allow Ukraine to go without a fight. To aim to veer westward, to, to orient itself with the European Union. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, I think it's a significant priority for Putin to um, send a signal to other states in the near abroad uh, that uh, this is a policy of a strong country uh, that is back, right? I mean, this was the purpose of the Sochi Olympics. Right, Russia is back. Um, the strategic rationale, however, I think is complemented by a distinctive domestic rationale. And I, I got the sense from reading today's inter very interesting, extensive interview that he gave to the Russian, to the press, that I commend to all of you. And Putin, of course, has, well, uh, a distinctive use of language. Uh, he, he, is, he is known for being um, memorable. Um, I'm trying to be diplomatic here. You're, you're, being, uh, um, you're succeeding. <laughs> um, and as I was reading it, I was struck how several times he came back to the idea that what is happening in Ukraine is, and he used several different words for it, anarchy, chaos, lawlessness, 
And this reminded me of the, of the, these were the words, these are the words that Putin still uses and the, and the Russian government still uses to describe the 90s, the Yeltsin years. Uh, this was, you know, they call it dispredial, which literally means no rules, uh, kind of Habesian kind of world. So I think the domestic rationale for this action is not only, the logic is, not only will we not let Ukraine go without a fight, but it is rather, it is as well, we will not let Ukraine go like this. We will not let this kind of banditry, as he calls them, take over. And for, I mean, in my uh, opinion, it's a shot across the bow to the domestic audience in Russia. Because in Russia, Putin also has demonstrations with which he deals robustly and decisively. And again, I am being, being careful with my, with my language here. So I think there are, uh, the, the, there is a, a, a kind of a psychological aspect to the way he's dealing with this, not just strategic. These are actions by a leader who believes himself to be a strong leader and a strong person. And of course, we're all familiar with the PR campaign with which he approaches his, his public image. But there was something that struck me in what he said about the revolutionaries in Ukraine. He said in, in the Russian newspaper, this is the Vasilyska Gazeta, the mouthpiece of the Kremlin, essentially, it said that, that the president was angry as he was saying they wanted to humiliate Yanukovych, but they overreached. They want to show force, and they overreached. He's clearly angry about this and, and hurt. So Eugene, would you agree with, um, with <laughs> a lot of people who believe that there's the largest strategic objective has to do with um, the Russian so-called near abroad? that after the disintegration of the Soviet Union in December 91, of course, eventually NATO and the European Union filled the space in Central Europe. NATO took in 10 of those former Warsaw Pact countries, three former republics of the Soviet Union, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. There were certain countries that were left behind that didn't get admitted to the EU and NATO. Armenia, Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine. And if Putin's strategic in intentions keep them I won't say as vassal states of Russia, but in the Russian orbit, influenced by Moscow, not influenced by Brussels or Washington. Is that the big strategic uh, leap that he's taking here? Is that why he's making this statement by invading Ukraine? Well, I think it certainly is part of it. I mean, not letting Ukraine go without a fight certainly sends a signal that we're not just, you can't just pick us apart. And it's no accident that in his statement again, he pointedly says people fighting in Kiev were trained among other places in Lithuania and in Poland. And it is no, um, uh, it is no uh, accident that, and you mentioned the debate at the United Nations, I actually um, uh, printed this out. The Lithuanian ambassador to the United Nations said very pointedly, this resurrects the memory of the darkest pages of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, unfortunately, the, the French ambassador said no less pointedly, and for me this was particularly po poignant. He said he was hearing the voice of the past. He says, I was 15 years old in 1968 when Soviet forces entered Czechoslovakia with the same justification of protecting uh, the Russian population. It is propaganda that denies reality. And of course, for me, it was particularly poignant because I came to this country when I was 15. So it, 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 it does, you know, the echoes of the Cold War you can certainly hear. Thank you. Kevin, let's bring you into this. Um, does anybody who knows the Russian military, it's you. You were the defense attaché. Your job was to work with the <laughs> Russian military, but you're also running this group of retired Russian and American officers. So the key strategic question appears to be, did Putin indicate in the press conference this morning in the veiled way that he speaks that he's pausing now? He's pausing in Crimea, that he's not yet ready to extend Russian military influence into eastern Ukraine, and that maybe he's waiting for events because there is a lot of criticism of him internationally. Is that how you read him? And, and, and tell us how you think Russian military officers would appreciate this situation. So uh, I think you've, you've picked up on a message from today. I'm, I'm not sure if it's a pause or not, but it's, it's definitely a, um, a point in which he's casting doubt on the story that we thought was unfolding in Crimea. He's saying, for example, that uh, he has not introduced any troops into Crimea and that these troops that you're seeing on television were already there as part of the Black Sea. Uh, I know you're shaking your head. <laughs> and I, I, my, my, uh, the saying that always uh, is in the back of my head is that the first report from the front is always wrong. <laughs> Uh, when, when you hear from uh, the initial reports that there were Russians coming across the border, could that have been wrong? Could it have been a mistake by the journalists there or what they were seeing? I don't know. Up until the time when Putin claimed that in a press conference that there were no Russian troops sent in, uh, I was convinced that they had been based on what I had seen and what I had uh, been able to see just on television and here or there. I think if I had to bet today, I would still bet that, that he did introduce troops. But it's a pretty brazen statement for a head of state to say when you've got the places crawling with CNN and BBC reporters. Uh, that's one thing. He's, he's trying to confuse the situation. He's trying to uh, deflate in some ways the situation by saying that uh, we didn't introduce troops. What's the panic? I'm not here to annex Crimea. Don't panic. Uh, and, and he cast a little, create a little doubt amongst the Western uh, allies and, and the Ukrainians. I, I don't think the Ukrainians have any doubt, but maybe doubt uh, about people who are only seeing this through television. So, yeah, you picked up on a, on a very important thing there. In, in terms of the military, the military um, is, uh, the Russian military is very professional. In a lot of ways, they're like any other military around the world. Uh, they, uh, most other militaries, they, are subordinated to a civilian leadership. Uh, in this case, that's true. I think it's been in the history of Russia that they would uh, be this way, whether it was to the Communist Party initially or uh, today to uh, Putin himself. Uh, so they're taking their orders, clearly. Uh, the ones, it, the numbers are low enough that uh, this is probably either hand-picked uh, troops or troops that we can, we, the, the Russians say, think they can rely on to do what they're told there and, and to do what uh, is necessary. Um, so uh, professional troops in place, 
Uh, I'm surprised to some degree that we haven't had a shot fired. Uh, Putin in his press conference today said not shot fired. Uh, he's, he's essentially correct. But uh, uh, this is a tinderbox, and uh, there are a lot of matches standing up right now that could be lit at any moment. So uh, in terms of the military, I think uh, we have a situation in Crimea right now which is very explosive. Uh, it could uh, go south very quickly. Fortunately, it has not yet. Let me ask you uh, a follow-up question, Kevin. President Obama has said that this is an outright violation of the United Nations Charter, of the Helsinki Final Act, and of the Budapest Declaration of December 1994 that President Clinton and President Yeltsin signed to guarantee the territorial integrity of Ukraine when they gave up their nuclear weapons. Um, there's going to be a political response, an economic response. I think that the United States and Europe have made the right decision to say there will be no military response. We are not going to put NATO troops up on the Romanian Ukrainian border or the Polish Ukrainian border. That, um, that would be catastrophic potentially between nuclear weapons powers. And, and as President Bush decided in 2008 during the Georgia invasion, we will not react militarily. That's the right decision. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, we spent the last 24 years in NATO uh, telling the Russians that NATO was not a threat to them, that NATO was not here to confront the Russians. And today we see that those claims were all true, that NATO cannot confront the Russians today, cannot threaten the Russians today. Whatever they've done in Crimea, they've gotten away with, uh, whether it's uh, just to be as Putin claimed today, just to be there protecting them, Russian language speakers, or uh, to annex uh, Crimea. It's essentially, I say they've gotten away with it. Militarily, they've gotten away with it. There's no, there's no solution coming from the Pentagon for this. Uh, because over those 24 years, we've reduced the readiness, we've reduced the numbers. Uh, there is no, there are two brigades of US combat forces in Europe today. In the United States, because of wars, how many people is that? Two brigades. How a two brigade. Each brigade is maybe about four thousand people. So that's it. That's it. And and not all four thousand of those guys and gals are are running to the line with a with a rifle. Some Although of them. we are, have substantial air power. We have substantial air power. Yeah. But you don't want to commit the air force uh, unless it's going to be a shooting war. Right. You can maneuver. You can do the, some of the things that people have thought about, maybe rejected, but thought about moving troops and increasing alert and so on. I agree that that's, that's, I think, a little foolhardy right now because it, everybody knows that it's not backed up really by anything. And within the United States, our own uh, homeland here, we really, because of sequestration last year, we missed an entire year of training. So the military forces back here have not, are not ready. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, of the, all the brigades and divisions here, there's only one or two that are deployable. So. Uh, we're not in a position to do anything. The military option is off the table, not only because it's the smart thing to do, it's the only thing we have to do. Right. And we don't want to take the chance that there could be some kind of uh, minor clash that would produce a bigger confrontation exactly. between two yeah. nuclear weapons powers. So we're taking the high road, as it were, and President Obama's been saying there's only going to be a political and economic response to this. Let's talk about that in three pieces. As I see the President and the European leadership, they're saying three things. One, there has to be an economic cost to Russia for what it's done. And so they're debating whether or not there should be uh, moderate sanctions or heavier financial sanctions, debating whether to boycott the G8 summit in Sochi, which I think they will do, whether we should expel Russia from the G8. That's the economic basket. Second are the, all the measures being taken 
to support Ukraine, from the economic support to the political support. And third, we're going to see NATO meet and reaffirm its collective defense of its current members. This is not, we have no security commitment to Ukraine on a legal basis in NATO, but we do have a legal security commitment to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria. So on that score, gentlemen, and let me ask the two of you, then I'll you know, come back to Sergei, should the United States go back to a missile defense proposal for our allies, Poland and the Czech Republic? And should we reinforce the NATO um, air policing in the Baltic states to show Putin that he really can't go very far in Europe because NATO does protect 26 European allies? Would you both favor that? So I'll answer first. I favor it. I favor not only doing it because of what it shows, but doing it because a, a, as a manifestation of, a, of what you just suggested is a complete rethink of our relationship with Russia vis-a-vis -vis NATO. Uh, we've been trying to be partners and colleagues and allies or whatever you want to call it for the last 24 years. Meanwhile, the Russians have been balancing and deterring that. They've, they've never abandoned that. Uh, they saw the relationship in that way. We saw it in a different way. They were right. <laughs> we were wrong because they did not give up that 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 attitude. So now, uh, and we've tried it. And and in the face of what's happened here, I think we need to think about how are we going to balance and deter Russia. And the, and the examples you just gave are excellent ones. And I would I would immediately put those on the docket and talk Thank about you. them. Eugene, how do you think about this? Are we back into a Cold War mentality where the United States has to essentially protect European countries against Russia? I think we have no choice but to send a strong signal to our allies that we stand by them. Russia is sending strong signals. We have to send a strong signal. In fact, uh, you mentioned Poland. It is no surprise that the Poles are concerned about Russian military drills in um, Kaliningrad mm -hmm. recently mm -hmm. and have asked NATO to reaffirm the, um, the fact that they will be protected. So allies, and in fact, in my opinion, Ambassador Burns, it, it goes beyond uh, the NATO allies. Our allies in East Asia, our allies in the Middle East are all watching. They're watching if this is going to be another Syria. They are watching if this is going to be another um, uh, diplomatic conversation about the Chinese air defense zone. Mm -hmm. So it's really a test, what you seem to be saying, of, of American leadership and of President Obama's leadership as the NATO leader. Well, I, um, I'm going to do something that is not very smart, and that is not to heed Yogi Berra's advice, who said predictions are hard, especially about the future. Um, I'm going to make a prediction. Make a prediction. We'll see. That this crisis is going to define President Obama's leadership for the next several years and his entire presidency in the same way, in a similar way, that the Cuban Missile Crisis defined JFK's. This is, this is very important, and it's very important to stand by our allies. And, and as, as Kevin said, to, to, to do the things that, to put back on the table the things that you mentioned. And just one more, and this is a very important point. 
because peace in Europe, democracy in Europe, has been the overriding American objective from FDR to Barack Obama, every president, Republican, Democrat. This is the test. Can we defend Europe? And it's amazing we're back at this question. We thought we'd never have to answer it again. Is that, those are the stakes that you're talking about? I, I hate to be coming back to the Cold War. And, and President Obama said we're no longer in the Cold War. But Trotsky said it well. You know, you may not be interested in war, but war may be interested in you, or something along those lines. Um, this is the world that he is confronting. You can't run away from it. You can't do half measures on it. I think our allies are looking for strong, for strong leadership. And, and the only country that can provide that kind of leadership is the United States. Thank you. Sergei, the, the big part of the story that is almost being lost in the Putin versus Obama standoff is what's going to happen to the people of Ukraine? Now, they've got the interim government, mm -hmm. presidential elections at the end of May. Take us through your thoughts on how, to, how best could we help stabilize Ukraine, yeah. help Ukraine during this transition? Mm -hmm. Well, Ukraine at this point is, is a bankrupt state. And uh, to great degree because of the policies, economic policies of the previous government of President Yanukovych. And uh, the, it, that government was basically looting the, the, the country. And what you saw for three months, there were protests going on on the streets of Kiev with sub-zero temperatures, both Celsius and Fahrenheit. Uh, people wanted better life and better conditions. They, they went to the streets when they heard that the government is not signing any more association agreement with European Union. And in Ukraine at that point, Europe was a short word for a state without corruption, a fair judicial system, better ways of conducting business. And that's, that's, the key, that's the key demand that people in Ukraine, and especially those who were who spent those months in Kyiv, wanted. And there is uh, a lot of ways in which the United States, together with its European partners, can help Ukrainians to achieve that goal. The immediate crisis, the, the, the immediate challenge is that uh, Ukraine owns Russia $2 billion in, in unpaid uh, gas that, that uh, Ukraine gets from Russia. Uh, but the question is not just money. This money should come, but it should come under certain conditions. The, the reform should be the main condition of that and reform economic, reform of judiciary, a lot of these things, the laws are already there. They were prepared to sign them. So the, 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 the uh, template is there. Bringing this assistance together with the technical assistance also how to get there, it's the most important, it's the most important uh, contribution that it seems to me United States can, can make to solving Ukrainian crisis, not only immediately, not for the next week or two, but in a longer, in a longer perspective and longer run. Thank you. So w we are going to see a big effort by the U.S. and Europe mm -hmm. to extend assistance. Um, I think Europe and the United States agree on that. What, a, what there appears to be a fissure between Angela Merkel and Barack Obama on what we do mm -hmm. against the Russians. 
on, on the question of economic sanctions, mm -hmm. the question of boycotting Sochi or expelling them from the G8. Mm -hmm. Can the Europeans and Americans close ranks? Because if we don't close ranks, hasn't Putin divided us and won't he weaken the international response? Uh, absolutely. What, what certainly uh, influenced President Putin's behavior, at least in my opinion, is that uh, this time around there was this common front between EU and, and United States in, in terms of trying to stop the aggression into Ukraine, and, and it worked. The same is true when US and EU were speaking in the same voice regarding the Yanukovych government and absolutely inadmissibility of the situation where the government gives orders to riot police to shoot its people. Again, it, it toppled the Yanukovych government, the, the position that not only US but also EU took. In terms of, of the sanctions toward Russia or the way to, to react toward Russian Russian aggression and occupation of the part of the territory of sovereign states, you're absolutely right. There, there, there has to be a common front. If the common front is not there, the sanctions will not be, uh, the, the sanctions will not be effective, or the message that will be sent will be not heard. How how to do that? I refer this question to you. To oh, you. thank you very much. I appreciate <laughs> it. Well, let me do this. Uh, get ready to ask your most difficult questions of my friends here. We have microphones, we have four or five of them around here, but I want to ask, as you prepare your questions, let me just ask you all predictions. And I used to hate this when I was State Department spokesperson, people would ask hypothetical questions. I'm going to ask hypothetical questions of the three of you. Predictions. Scenario one is that Putin stops in Crimea, Ukraine struggles and muddles through to the presidential elections, but it's not divided in two by Russia and somehow Ukraine survives into the future mm -hmm. in a very difficult way. Scenario two, ethnic Russians in the eastern part of Ukraine appeal to the support of Russia and Russian troops occupy major Ukrainian cities in the east, Kharkiv, mm -hmm. Donetsk, and we're looking at a divided Ukraine and a much more inflamed crisis than the one we have today. These are just crude hypothetical situations, but I'm just trying to put you all on the spot. So maybe Kevin will go to, where do you see this N number happening? Number one, number one, because uh, uh, I don't think Putin wants to give up Crimea in whatever. He'll stay in Crimea. Yeah, well, he will, he will facilitate the Crimean vote at the end of this month to establish whatever Boy. their relationship is. Boy, that's a diplomatic word. <laughs> you mean he's gonna. Uh, he's gonna stay there and keep the Ukraine. He's gonna stop the ballot box. He could do that, but, yeah. but I think he's going to He's going to let this unfold, and and uh, the Ukra uh, Crimea may establish itself in some I don't even know what the term might be some independent more independent status with the Ukraine and a different special relationship with Russia that'd be fine for him. He's not going to give up Crimea. He saw an opportunity to take back a place which, as the professor suggested, had a great um, emotional as well as strategic importance to Russia. He's not giving that up. Uh, the, uh, the rest of Ukraine. He can leave that in turmoil, tie up the West and the Ukraine for years trying to fix all of that. He'll be so busy trying to save the Ukraine while he's sitting down there in Sevastopol. So let me just get this straight. So you think that he's going to stop at Crimea. He won't, unless right. there's an absolute reason to do so, send his military right. north. He's just going to steal Crimea. 
against all international laws and keep it and not withdraw in, in the next five or ten years? Against all the laws that you and I might cite, he'll, he'll cite plenty of laws that, that allow him to do that. There's a great article by Roger Cohen who's going to be at the Kennedy School Thursday morning for breakfast, open to the public. Uh, Roger wrote in the New York Times this morning, he ends his article with a quote about the sanctity of international law, that only the UN Security Council can actually uh, authorize the use of military force. Countries can't go above beyond those borders. It was Vladimir Putin's critique of the United States on Syria, and that gets to this question of international law. So at least that's something we can use against him. Eugene, uh, scenario one, which is Putin stops where he is. Scenario two, he moves forward with his military. I am pessimistic um, that it will be scenario one. The most um, disconcerting, the most uh, intriguing uh, the most ominous statement in his press conference, in President Putin's press conference, today's. today's press conference, was where he said, we already have the demand by the duly elected President Yanukovych to come and get involved further. And he says, if the people will demand it, we will do it. It's an action of last resort, of course, but it's the kind of thing where we have everything in terms of legitimate, and he says, and it will be legitimate. In fact, it sounded eerily like Nixon when he said, if I use force, it will be legitimate, because I used it. He, in fact, in the press conference twice, essentially verbatim, quoted US presidents, one on, uh, on Nixon, one Bush. He says, the United States does this. You make a decision in Morgenthau type of way. He didn't uh, invoke Morgenthau, but essentially he says you figure out what your national interests are, you do what you want, and then you say you're either with us or guess what, you're against us. You're referring to Hans Morgenthau. Hans Morgenthau, yeah. um, and, and of course he was quoting George W. Bush yeah. on after 9-11. Um, so there, uh, that was very intriguing, that statement that we are, it will be legitimate, if we have to do it, and we have the groundwork laid for it. I know that Professor Floki's students are here today, and, uh, and some of my students are here, and you might want to Google the Kremlin website, the Kremlin's English language readout of Putin's phone call with President Obama on Saturday, and then Google the White House website and read the White House version. It's fascinating. They're completely different <laughs> conversations. <laughs> but the key point is Eugene's right. point where President Putin, in the English language translation that the Kremlin put out, said, and I think they repeated twice, I reserve the right to protect ethnic Russians where they are in Ukraine, not just in Crimea. So I thought that was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Sergei, your prediction? Well, uh, scenario number one for now. <laughs> That's uh, a safe prediction. Well, um, <laughs> uh, Putin, Putin is in the Crimea not primarily because he is interested in the Crimea. He is in the Crimea because he is interested in not allowing Ukraine to drift further to the West. And uh, my prediction is that uh, there will be the referendum. The question that is now presented for people to vote on is not on the integration into Russia of the Crimea, but on the creation of a Crimean statehood. So uh, his vision is that Crimea 
de facto will be under Russian control, but the euro will be part of Ukraine. And by influencing events in the Crimea, he will try to influence the government in Kiev. So that's uh, in terms of the more or less medium term, a short term perspective. What will happen in three months, four months, five months? I, I thank God every day that I am a historian and <laughs> I, 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 I can explain everything that happened in history, but I can't really predict much. <laughs> so, uh, but but, but uh, short term and medium term scenario, he'll, he'll stay in the Crimea. We're gonna go to questions. There are microphones here, here, yeah. here, and here. But just before, I'm gonna call on you first to ask a question. I have to ask a follow-up to Eugene, to um, Professor Floki's last question. Is Putin signaling, not just to the Ukrainians, but to the Moldovans, Georgians, and Armenians, you're never leaving our orbit. This is what I do when countries get out of our orbit. Is that what he's essentially saying? Serhiy, yeah, unfortunately, okay. Professor, I think he is. This is a question <laughs> for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, this is, this is a signal that is sent far beyond Crimea and far beyond Ukraine. And uh, this is a signal that was, uh, was uh, mm, I, I'm pretty sure, understood in that, exactly in that way. So uh, from that point of view, the position that the West is taking now is extremely important because we are not in a situation of monologue where Mr. Putin, only Mr. Putin is speaking. We hear now a loud voice of President Obama, of uh, Western leaders, and uh, again, th th there is exchange of messages and people in those countries, they, they listen to, to both speakers. Thank you very much. Let's go here and just uh, a word on questions. If you could just identify yourself if you're a student or if you're not a student. And just uh, we appreciate questions, especially those that end with a question mark. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Thanks. I'm Ned Reinhardt from the Fellows Program here. And uh, I didn't hear anybody talk about uh, the recent energy deal two to three months ago that went awry over there where Ukraine wanted to set up an energy deal. Uh, looked like European Union had a deal. And then uh, the Russia sweetened the deal with a $15 billion loan to help them avoid default. And then the, the deal seemed to come apart and uh, really, really for, for no good reason. Uh, so there was, uh, Russia was upset about that. And then the, the people in Russia or in Crimea, the Russian uh, majority in Crimea, do, do they feel like they've been overthrown in some way that the leaders they elected are now out? And uh, if, if this vote that General Ryan talked about, that if, if this does go through, and uh, Eastern Ukraine does decide to secede, um, which is, isn't this really just uh, part of a global trend in ethno-nationalism? Um, in, okay. Indeed, the, uh, the Soviet that's Union, the, oh, that's it. That's a great four-part question. <laughs> and well, Serhei, would you like to? Uh, uh, well, uh, what we saw during the last half of the previous year, 2013, Ukraine was preparing to side association agreement with European Union, which included economic part and creation of a free, free trade zone, or at least elements of that. And that uh, was something that Russia tried to preclude. So in August of 2013, they started to, to introduce sanctions, trend, uh, uh, trade sanctions and 
to close Russian markets to some of Ukrainian products. And uh, the message that was given to them, government of Ukraine, was that you can't be both part of the association agreement with Europe and continue uh, trade relations with us the way how it was. You have to choose. And basically, we'll help you to make the right choice. And the way how, uh, how the leverage that was used apart from closing Russian markets was also $15 billion loans. And uh, uh, the, the, first, the, the first part of that loan, $3 billion, was, was transferred to Ukraine. Again, conditions were that the government was supposed to suppress the, the, the products that were there. And of course, it didn't work. And what we hear now that Russia is withdrawing in terms of the remaining, remaining part of that loan, apparently it is not, it is not happening. So that's, that's the, the dynamics and that's the chronology of that e economic deal. And then there were two additional questions. I, I, uh, the, 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 the second part was... Uh, I, I, I said if, if the vote goes through for Eastern Ukraine to secede, then isn't that consistent with uh, the global trend in ethno-nationalism, where the, say the uh, Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia, they broke up into 24 countries. Scotland's voting on secession later this year. Catalonia is talking about it. I guess the question well, would be, would it be yeah. on a free and fair basis, that vote? Uh, well, again, it, it, it can't be a, a free vo vote under, under current and under current conditions, which are conditions of occupation. Uh, you also asked, now it came back to me, the question about what people in the Crimea think about that. Again, limited access of journalists, we don't know for sure. In February, they did polling on whether you want to be part of Ukraine or want to be part of Russia. At that point, the majority of those polled were in, in favor of, of being part of Ukraine and staying as part of Ukraine. Anecdotal evidence that I have is that the local elites, the Crimean elites, would prefer to go back to the, to the situation before the Russian invasion. For a number of reasons, they felt that they had more autonomy and more power and more leverage in Ukraine the way how it was in comparison to what can await them in Russia. So uh, again, I, I, this is unconfirmed type of, of information, but from what, from what I know about the situation, it makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Sir, Roman. Roman Rubchenko, I'm the student here mid-career at HKS. Uh, the question I have is the following. All the discussions that we're having right now assumes that there is no uh, uh, violence right now, that there are no shots fired, that everything is peaceful. Uh, Crimea is a quite a diverse place. We have 15% of the population of Crimea are Tatars who've been uh, wronged by the Soviet Union in the past and they still maintain that in their DNA. Uh, they're very, very united and they're uh, doing their best right now to stay calm and not to react. I've seen many videos already that where people start coming out to the soldiers and start antagonizing them, asking them, who are you, what are you doing here? What so it looks like people are growing impatient. How does uh, whatever we're talking about today, how does it change if the violence starts? Shots are fired, be it militias, uh, like uh, people formed militias, or be it Ukrainian government deciding that they need to get rid of those unmarked soldiers that Russia says are not their soldiers from Crimea. How does that change the situation? What does the United States do then? What does uh, European Union does then? What does NATO do? Uh, 
Good question, Roman. Who would like to? I can tell you that, um, from my perspective, if I was back in the Pentagon in the tank, uh, a room, special room in the Pentagon where the chiefs of the staff, the staff uh, huddle and advise the secretary or even the president sometimes, uh, and, they, and they were planning for such a contingency or they were reacting to that, the first thing they would say is that, uh, just as we told you last week, Mr. President and Mr. Secretary, our options are very limited for direct military assistance in, into the Crimea. What we can do is we can begin to uh, send assistance, material, advisory, and other kinds of assistance immediately to Kiev and, and to try to bolster the Ukrainian military. Uh, you're, you've described a very dangerous situation, which I think would be foolhardy for me to try and, and predict how that would unfold. Uh, and and uh, hopefully we won't have to, to watch that happen, but that would be a, a, just a terrible mess which could spiral out of control very easily. Can I just say, Roman was in my class today and we surveyed the great powers today. How are they reacting to this crisis? And if, Roman, if your prognosis becomes true, tragically, if there's violence and if the Russian troops move further, I wonder if it's going to be a real risk for President Putin because he'll, he'll be subjected to greater international condemnation. What, we, what our class determined today is that India has said nothing. India is not condemning this. Brazil is not condemning this. China took a very careful line in the Security Council meeting, but not quite pro-Russian yesterday. And the Europeans have not reacted as strongly as I would have expected. So if this scenario unfolds of greater violence, greater international condemnation of, uh, of, of Putin. So there's a risk to him if he does incite this kind of, this kind of violence. Please. And Roman is from Ukraine, so yes, absolutely. So uh, it seems to me that the risks are not being discussed right now. Uh, Ukraine has six nuclear power stations. Uh, there is a pipeline, gas pipeline that goes through Ukraine that supplies 20% of the gas that's consumed by Europe annually. Uh, we have 46 million people, uh, and if that was to happen, there's a lot at risk for Europe. Uh, there's going to be a refugee problem, be it Tatars leaving uh, Crimea, going to Ukraine, be it Ukrainians, Western Ukrainians leaving and going to Poland or uh, Hungary. It seems like everyone is taking a position right now, well, let's just hope that it doesn't happen. Let's just close our eyes and tomorrow it will go away. And it seems like someone should be planning for these contingencies and thinking and having an idea what to do when that happens. I mean, don't, don't you find that peculiar? Eugene? Uh, <coughs> Well, regrettably, I'm not one of those planning, one of those in the group that, that, that plans for those contingencies. Um, but um, my sense is that with the options that we have, we have to distinguish clearly what the kind of policies we are proposing here, uh, what objectives they can achieve. We're engaging here in coercive negotiations with the Russians. We're trying to persuade them to go back on what they have done. Uh, in my opinion, I, and I agree with, with both Professor and, and, and Kevin that they will not uh, give back Crimea, at least not at the costs that we're imposing now. We said we will not go to G8. Lavrov said, and Putin Russian as well. Foreign minister. Uh, Russian Foreign Minister, uh, Sergei Lavrov, and, and President Putin just said very bluntly, well, don't come. You don't want to come, don't come. Uh, in fact, Lavrov says um, in the recent interview, uh, 
the West seems to believe that the chairmanship of the G8 is some sort of a privilege. He says, it's not a privilege, this works. Um, so, uh, and in fact, you can expect uh, Russia to be, if you will, counter-coercing. It, it, you can expect Russia to uh, go back and say, we're gonna impose costs on you for trying to force us. And Putin has already said, uh, if you want to destabilize the relationships you have established with us on international peace and security and international uh, economic governors, governance, go ahead. This will hurt you as much as it will hurt us. So we have limited options. Thank you. Yes, please. Hello, my mm -hmm. name is Wright. I'm a freshman at the college. And so um, a few weeks ago, before the crisis kind of has reached its current point, uh, the American ambassador to Russia, uh, Michael McFaul, uh, left that position. So I'm sure he's either really happy or really sad that he did so. Um, what I'm wondering is how does the lack of the specific ambassador who both has the appointment of the president but also the personal contacts or expertise with the country, how does that lack impact the United States' ability to communicate with the Russians and to shape policy going forward? Well, it's not ideal. I, I'll just, if you don't mind, answer your question. It's not ideal that Mike McFaul um, is back at Stanford as of last week. Um, and um, we don't have an ambassador there now, but we have a charge d'affaires. We have a senior career diplomat who's in charge of the embassy, and, and they're people who are Russian language speakers, experts in the country, and so the, the embassy's in good hands. But I think that the Diplomacy is happening at a very high level. President Obama and President Putin have talked a couple of times in the last week. Secretary Kerry and Minister Lavrov may meet tomorrow. Uh, Secretary Kerry, I think, is en route to Paris from Kiev. And so Secretary Kerry's been a very energetic Secretary of State. He's going to take control, I think, of the daily communications. And it has to be at his level because um, these are very tough talks, and it's got to be done at the Cabinet level, and Secretary Kerry is clearly up to this challenge. It's a very good question. Thank you. I can add historical Please. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, <coughs> moment to that. In 1991, during the coup in Moscow, the situation was the same. There was no yeah. American ambassador at that time in Moscow. Uh, again, I, I don't think it affected much what, what was going on there, but it is an interesting coincidence. I don't know. That I see a trend now. <laughs> I see a trend. To a trend, uh, yeah. okay, not there. Uh, yes, please. Hi, uh, my name is Max. I'm a member of the John F. Kennedy Forum Junior Committee. And I want to ask a question about what the U.S. basically can do um, in, to impact and to influence this situation. You mentioned the issue of Russia and, and, and how sort of deteriorating international institutions like the G8 would have an impact on the United States as much as it would on Russia. And there have been some commentators in the media who have said that maybe the United States should put sanctions on Russia similar to the ones we have on Iran. Um, so my question is, A, realistically, what is the chance that we're going to do that? But B, not only what impact would that, those sort of sanctions have on Russia, but what do you think the blowback would be to the United States? Very good question. Tough question. Who would like to, to handle that question, gentlemen? I can only say that today they announced that, uh, was it today or yesterday, they announced that military, military uh, cooperation and activities have been suspended. Uh, that that is uh, that's an important sign, but I don't think there's a huge blowback to the United States or to Russia because of that. 
and, and we've done that twice before in the Cold War, once when uh, uh, Russia in, uh, invaded Georgia, and, and it was done too after Bosnia and, and, and when uh, uh, NATO uh, was operating in the Balkans. So, uh, I, you know, in that, in that regard, I don't see a big blowback uh, from that, but that's a very specific example. This is a very important question. I guess I'd say that you're not going to see that kind of vociferous sanctions effort from Europe. And the Germans are clearly signaling they don't want to go there. But President Obama is going to be under enormous pressure in the United States. This is, after all, an election year. And you've seen all of our senators and congressmen out talking in very tough terms about sanctions. So I think that Congress is going to look at the Magnitsky sanctions, the second chapter of them, that would impose personal sanctions on certain Russian officials and individuals. But the bigger question you ask is, we could hurt Russia financially if we impose financial sanctions through the Treasury Department. But there is going to be an effect on us. For instance, you know, ExxonMobil is just about to go forward with one of the largest contracts ever, uh, energy contracts in Russia. There'll be an impact on the American economy, and the President's going to have to weigh the comparative advantage of that step. So it's a very good public policy uh, could question. I, could I just add? Yes, please, Gene. I, I completely agree with what Ambassador Burns has just said. Uh, but I think it's important for the United States citizens, like yourself, like all of us, to keep our expectations real. Because while we can hurt Russia, I personally, and I don't know if you would agree, I am skeptical that it will actually force them to make any significant changes to their, to their position. Yeah. But we are certainly in a position to inflict some serious harm. Yeah. We've effectively, through the financial sanctions against Iran and the oil and gas sanctions, decoupled Iran from the international financial system. There is not going to be support globally to do that to Russia. It just won't happen. Yes? A question for the general and for anyone else who's interested. How should this affect what we now do with the defense budget and how we allocate our defense resources? In light of Secretary Hagel's talking about uh, making changes and cuts, you had mentioned sequestration and, frankly, some of the things you said about our readiness are, are really scary. So should this cause a reevaluation of what we should be doing with the budget? Thank you. Yeah, we should be reevaluating, but I want to say that uh, if I'm talking tough here, don't uh, misinterpret. I, I think the, uh, the reducing budgets, the reducing size of the military, these are things that are in response to tectonic uh, plates that are forcing this. this this was happening when Bush came into, into his administration back in 2000. We were reducing the Army. We were reducing costs. It was interrupted by two wars in 9-11, rightfully so. But now we're back to responding to those forces. And, and, and I, I think even though I, I like personally a bigger Army, uh, I think there is, uh, the, the U.S. is still going to be reducing. Now, we, we can still... Uh, be very uh, capable military. We can still balance and check and deter Russia with this new military that we'll have. And I, th I think we just need to do it that way. In the election year, there may be pressure, though. And, and yeah, and I'm I'm not talking not to go politics. forward with the, with the ben defense yeah. budget. That's yeah. we'll see. It's a very good question. Right. Yes, my name is Artyom Gegamian, and I'm a fellow here at Kennedy School of Car Center for Human Rights Policy. And I was born in a geopolitical entity which does not exist anymore. And uh, I was one of the victims of this bidding system here at Kennedy School, so I couldn't take your course, Professor Burns, and it's great to have you here tonight. <laughs> so my question is about the 
During last two, three weeks, CNN, BBC, and others kept entertaining us by showing those golden toilets and you know stuff like that. And I just wanted to assure you that there are a lot of a lot more golden toilets in Yerevan, in Baku, a little bit less probably in Tbilisi, and still in Minsk. And then when you are saying that Russia sends us, Armenians, Georgians, Azerbaijanis, others, message that we are never to leave the Russian orbit. So the question is, what is this orbit about? And this orbit is about lack of rule of law, lack of democracy, violation of human rights, and about golden toilets. So my question is, what are your thoughts in terms of South Caucasus? What we should expect? Do you think that those events can escalate you know, in, in South Caucasus? And do you think we should start making Molotov cocktails already from now or not yet? Sir, okay. as an expert on, on Molotov cocktails, uh, well, uh, <coughs> uh, it all depends on how things will turn out for Putin in the Crimea and in Ukraine, and what, how effective the sanctions will be on Western response in general. Uh, because we had a similar situation a few years ago with Georgia. And now everyone is saying that basically Putin got away with what he did there for a number of reasons and that what the world got and, and the region got as a result of that was this new adventure in the Crimea. So from that point of view, the results of this crisis will be really very important for the rest of the post-Soviet states. If the price for the intervention will be too high then that means that there will be no need for Molotov cocktails in, in, in other parts. If it will be considered that the price is okay, that, 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 that they can pay this price, then probably we'll get more Crimeans in the future. And again, not just in Ukraine. Thank you. Kevin? I just want to add, thanks for putting a human face on the situation in the Caucasus and reminding us that people in those places are going to have a vote on this too, how it comes out. It won't just be about things that we study here at the school. Thank you. We have time for two more questions, and they're right here at this microphone. Good My name is Yulia Ladinka, and I'm a fellow here at, um, at the Ukrainian Research Institute. And I ha have a question to you, first of all, but I would be interested to get the feedback for, from all the presenters. You've mentioned today that NATO has no legal obligations towards Ukraine, but you seem to overlook that the United States and the United Kingdom have the obligations towards Ukraine, legal ob obligations according to the 1994 memorandum. So don't you think that um, the United States, first of all, has to do more than just economic and political uh, support, has to go all the way to uh, protect the territorial integrity um, of Ukraine, uh, and if it fails to do so, don't you think that it could uh, lead to um, um, consequences in uh, uh, with the with the situation in North Korea, um, Iran, Pakistan, and India with their program uh, programs of nuclear um, weapons? Thank you very much. And um, since I, I I was working with President Clinton uh, and was with him in Budapest when he signed this agreement, and just a short uh, summary of what this is about. Uh, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. 
there were nuclear weapons in the soil of Belarus, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, and Russia when the Soviet Union imploded. The United States led the effort with the United Kingdom to convince Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan to give them up and actually to transfer them back to the Russian Federation. We were worried about nuclear proliferation. We were worried about too many nuclear weapons in the post-Soviet space. And I think it was the right decision, but the Ukrainians were worried. President Kravchuk at the time, when they gave up their nuclear weapons, at some future point, would some other country, i.e. Russia, threaten Ukraine's territorial integrity? So the document that was signed is called the Budapest Declaration, signed at the CSEE summit there, December 94. President Yeltsin, President Clinton, the British Prime Minister signed it, along with the Ukrainians to say, we will all respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine and the sanctity of its borders. I'm not quoting verbatim. And that if it's violated, all of us will consult to try to protect it. So I'd say, here's the problem for President Obama. That does not, that was not a treaty. It, it, it doesn't have, it can't be enforced. It's just an agreement. So there's no legal obligation for President Obama to send the US military to protect Ukraine's borders. But I think there's a moral, political obligation for us to be not just concerned, but to actively oppose what President Putin has done. And to do everything we can, and so it may take years to see if President Putin can be rolled back in Ukraine. But I don't think that will be through military force. In fact, it won't be. It'll be done through, po through politics, through political pressure and economic pressure. And I'm quite sure, because President Clinton was sure when he signed it, that that's what he agreed to do on behalf of all future American presidents. But there is a moral obligation for us to stand up and oppose what the Russians have done. To your, uh, to your country? Are you Ukraine Ukrainian? Yes. Yeah. It's a very good question. I don't know if anyone else wants to comment on that. No, I, I, I basically agree with that. Uh, Ukrainians very much count on, on, on support of uh, United States of America and, and UK. And uh, uh, many, many are saying that, well, after what happened, you really, you really can't trust Russia agreements with Russia. That uh, was not a prevailing attitude in Ukraine before, but certainly it is becoming prevailing now. So the violation in particular of that, of that treaty. Thank you. Eugene. I would just, I would just add quickly that the, question, the, the crisis in Ukraine raises a fundamental question in international relations that has been around for a very long time. And it's about the use of force and when it's legitimate and when it is legal. And Ukraine, in, Ambassador Burns will, will correct me, I believe is an associated or member of, it's, it's not a member of NATO, but it's, it's a partner. It's a, it's a, it's a partner, yeah, partner it's nation. A yeah. it's, a par, it's a partner nation. But as I said earlier, I think the United States has to be concerned about perceptions. The perception whether there is U.S. power or there is whether there is U.S. leadership or there is not, whether the United States stands up for what is right and goes against what is wrong, and is if sovereignty has any uh, meaning still in international politics, or if an aggressor state is a nuclear power, that maybe those rules don't apply. Maybe we should have that debate the next the next forum, but. But those are, those are the fundamental questions that this crisis, or in my opinion, the, the, that this crisis raises. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for a very good question. So the follow-up question is, 
United States uh, fails to support Ukraine in preserving its territorial integrity, what message would it send to Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, and so on, to the world? How much value yeah. would uh, would United States have as a uh, as a guarantor, a protector of uh, sovereignty of other countries? Fair in enough. Similar situations. Good question. I think it gets back to the point that Eugene made that there is linkage here, and that what the president chooses to do is going to have an impact on U.S. credibility and how the Iranians, Syrians, Hezbollah, others around the world see it. You you had made that point. Absolutely. I just. I don't want to take more time, but 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 absolutely, there's linkage, and absolutely, those country those those countries are watching, and our allies in those regions are watching. I mean, the Saudis are watching, the Japanese are watching, the the South Koreans are watching, the Turks are watching, right across the. So, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very thank you much. Thank you very much. Thank you for your questions. You have the last question. Hi, my name is Ales, I'm from MIT, I'm a graduate student here, and I have uh, another type of question. Uh, you know that uh, when people three months ago uh, went to the streets, they uh, didn't want new president, they didn't want new parliament, they needed a new system, new uh, political, new economical system in Ukraine. Uh, now we have the situation when uh, president escaped, and uh, but parliament uh, has the same is, is the same, and uh, and all many people in governmental link are the same. So uh, the question is: Are United States and European Union ready to? Um, uh, help Ukrainians to uh, fight with corruption, to make uh, system clear, for example, uh, to um, help create position for uh, Ukrainian students educated in other countries to uh, take this position uh, uh, for clear governmental man management in future of Ukraine. Thank you. Yes. Uh, well, in terms of the parliament remaining the same, there are questions raised and there are voices saying that after the presidential elections, there should be new elections, early elections for the parliament as well. The problem is that parliament stayed as the only legitimate, fully legitimate body of government in, in Ukraine. And going further in that direction of changing everything at this time would be really very, first of all, difficult, and second, would be very dangerous. Because the intervention, Russian intervention in the Crimea, appeared at the time when the government was just being formed, when the local governors were not yet replaced. They didn't have time to establish some links there and, and control over the territory. And this is one of the reasons why you see this <coughs> the protests or riots with the participation of the people bust from Russia in the neighboring areas of Ukraine. So the parliament should stay there at least until the, the presidential elections. And after that, I am pretty sure that the, the state of the society is that the society would like to have new elections as well. In terms of the, uh, what US and, and EU can do, again, 
the, the money that is given and will be given should, be, should come with a lot of, of uh, conditions attached. And the reform of judicial system, uh, other types of reform should be absolutely part of that. What was bad about, about Russian money? Not that it was coming from Russia, but what was bad that it was coming without any conditions attached in terms of the reform of the system. And that was, th 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 those money would be eaten up within one year and then Ukraine would stay exactly in the same place where, where it was or it is now. Thank you very much. I want to thank Professor Sergei Ploki, Eugene Kogan, Kevin Ryan, General Ryan. Thanks to all of our panelists tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.